The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Data Gurus. Today's episode is a little different. I'm going to focus more about as it relates to people or founders who are considering selling their company. As we know, the landscape is ever changing. There's a lot of capital coming into the industry. The definition of our industry through ResTech has helped a lot for investors to understand our marketplace compared to ad tech or martech. And so it's really brought up a lot of interesting conversations and I think thoughts from founders as it relates to what should they be thinking about. And so with that as a background, I've also asked John Sapala, my colleague at Oberon Securities, who's he's also a managing director there, has over 25 years of experience in investment banking and has conducted over 40 transactions. Welcome, John. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. How are you doing? Doing great. Cool. John, what do you think of the market now? I mean, we've gone through COVID. I mean, we have, we're not past the pandemic, but we're seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. We're seeing more activity. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of that. Obviously, uh, private equity firms are really, they're very want to be in the market. They're looking for companies. There's a lot of what we call dry powder in the market right now. And believe it or not, a lot of the tech companies performed very well coming out of COVID. Their reductions were small to minimal during COVID, and they're really exploding after COVID. We're seeing it quarter to quarter, which the rebound is pretty stark. You and I have had conversations with different companies in the space, and it seems like we're getting not necessarily companies saying, hey, I'm ready to sell, but just they're inquisitive. They want to understand what should they be thinking about if they are about to, you know, if they're considering potentially selling their company. What are some of the things that you look for when you talk to companies and kind of advise and say, you know, here are three things you have to consider before you even talk about a sale? Sure. So, you know, first of all, to your point, when the market is as, you know, like what we call is, uh, is very active, people just start thinking about, hey, should I be doing something now? Because it's so active and they're hearing all kinds of numbers being thrown around and companies doing this and doing that. So it happens a lot. But, you know, I kind of look at it and when I talk to uh, founders in three kind of buckets, which, you know, kind of the personal side, because this is a very, most of these companies, these are, these were started from the beginning and they have, you know, they're very vested personally in these businesses. I kind of look at some internal factors and some external factors as well. But what I usually do is just ask, well, why do you want to sell? And, you know, why do you want to sell now? And that leads me to the, and hopefully they can answer those two questions. And then after that, it's okay. Well, if you sell, then what happens after that? So I start there because that tells me a lot about whether somebody's really thought through 
whether they even want to sell or, you know, even possibly raise capital. Because a lot of times these founders don't even understand the, the steps they can go through, that there's not just a, you know, sell it or not sell it. it there's a lot of in-betweens. In between. Yeah. When you've gone through, obviously, you've had all kinds of different scenarios through your career. And when you ask founders as to why they want to sell, what's the common theme that you hear? Yeah, some of it is, and it's all over the place, obviously, but a lot of it is, hey, I think I brought the company as far as I can. I need to bring in more capital. I've put all my capital into this business, and I really don't know if I want to take on more risk, but I know I can grow it. Some are just tired. Hey, I've done this, and I'm ready to go on to something else. So, And that's an interesting you know, dynamic in this market and has evolved over the last 10 years or so. You know, We would never touch somebody who was you know, in the mid-40s selling their business because that, you know, the old days, that was, there's something wrong with that. But today... You know, we see guys 30 years old who built a really nice business and want to sell it and go do something else. So that's become very much more common and accepted to, you know, the investment bankers who are looking at. And have you run across situations where there's multiple partners and maybe one partner wants to sell, another one doesn't? And how do they reconcile their differences? Yeah, that's a very good question. Yes, I have. And that has a lot to do with dialogue before you, you know, do anything. You've got to really understand what each of the partners wants to do, make sure they're really in lockstep of how they want to they want to go through the transaction. Because I have had situations where you go through a transaction and you get to the end and one partner is really like, I don't think I really want to do this and all that work. So unfortunately it happens. It even happens if you do a lot of diligence up front like I do, but it does happen. Yeah, that's what I really like about your approach too, which you've kind of uh, shared with me as well, is that you know that upfront work is really critical. Sometimes you rush to say, okay, let's go represent this company. They say the words, I want to sell, but that upfront piece of really understanding the background, the mindset, expectations, it takes time and you know it doesn't happen overnight, but it's definitely worth an investment. Absolutely. Uh, especially the way that, as you know, the way I do deals, I get pretty personally invested myself. And so it's not just a transaction to me. So I, you know, I want to make sure if I'm going to work on something, it's going to be has a really high degree of level of success uh, associated with it. And I can really do something the client wants me to do. And I actually, I think it's also important, like you don't take it on blindly, right? The goal is to make sure that you've reduced the uncertainty of failure. And so you dig deep in terms of understanding what are the options and also are you aligned with the seller's expectations are? Because obviously if you bring a deal back and they're completely out of the ballpark, you kind of say, what are you doing here? Right. And I have that discussion as well because I've been in those situations where you know, a, you know, a seller wants a certain value and it's not realistic. That never worked very well. Right. So I get the question a lot, and I know you do too, you know, do I really need a banker? Do I need an investment banker? And, you know, I think it would be important for founders, anybody who's listening to the podcast, like, what is the role and value of an investment banker? Yeah. So the way I look at it is these are very complex transactions, and they're very different than what most founders have been through. They've negotiated contracts and done all those kinds of things. But, you know, these, this is multifaceted. It's, there's a lots of things that can really affect transaction that go beyond evaluation. So, you know, hey, I sold my company for $10 million. You know, there's a lot more behind the scenes that could 
back that $10 million. Now, and so a lot of it is just experience and understanding what's going on in the market, how deals get processed. The investment banker, you know, in my view, plays that role and makes sure that, you know, all the transactions from the beginning to the end is being done the right way. And it's all towards avoiding risk at the end, getting a transaction done. And then once you have a transaction done that, you know, you completed the way you wanted it to, you're experiencing the kind of the proceeds you wanted. And the in most cases, you know, a lot of these founders are staying with the businesses for some period of time or have some commitment to the business that that's what you thought it was going to be. And that's also very. So it's mitigating the risk. It's leveraging experience of kind of quote unquote gotchas. It's making sure what to look for when, you know, like you said, if there's an, if the founders are staying on, what does, you know, likely earn out look like and how do you set it up to succeed? What about in terms of outreach to the market and, you know, trying to get the best deal. Sure. You have that aspect as well that I didn't even touch on, which is we run a process. We have a competitive process and we tell the story we want to tell to the market, which, you know, we kind of, we feel like we understand what the market's looking for in terms of what is valuable and what is not. So when we do something, we're telling a story to the market and we're covering a broad range of the market so that we're getting multiple you know, bids and multiple offers, multiple structures, because that's the other thing, you know, one-off transactions, you know, they don't, you have no idea whether those are valued properly or not properly. So go into the market and let the market kind of tell you what the value is helps a lot, which most founders could not do. And uh, also the structures are always different. You know, there's, you know, one deal to another deal. There's usually nuances in those that are different. You know, it's, you know, a big part of doing any deal is the culture of who's buying you, what they want to do with it afterwards, what your role is going to be. If that's a factor, you want to really vet that very well. When a company doesn't sell, what do you chalk that up to? What's your kind of diagnosis when a company does not ultimately get a transaction? Assuming you did the upfront work, you're, you're aligned on expectations, but when you sit back and reflect, what do you attribute that to? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that can, and, you know, bring a deal to the market that doesn't work could be the performance of the company. That's usually what it is. A lot of times you'll, you'll get into one of these processes and the owners will take their eye off the ball a little bit. You know, there'll be, there'll be so, even though what we do tries to keep them out of the process as much as possible, they still get very, uh, you know, they're distracted. So that's part of it. Some of it is the company just was not ready to go. The market is is different than what they thought it was or what we thought it was in some cases. You know, we just had a deal in the education market and, you know, the market is very hot. Deals are getting done all the time. And we brought a company to market and really got virtually no traction, which, you know, kind of surprised us. We had a technology we thought was really, really good. But the market thought was telling us, hey, you know what, that technology, there's a lot of technologies out there and, you know, been a lot of money invested here. So there's nothing too exciting about this company. It wasn't growing very well. So, you know, it does happen. You know, you try to limit that, obviously. That does speak to, a little bit to timing, though, right? But in that, educa- specifically in this example, education's hot, especially through COVID and trying to think about remote learning models and, you know, all these tutoring companies and stuff like that. And people might have placed their bets earlier and potentially the timing could have been off. Yeah, it is. And timing the market is not the best way to go. In this particular case, you know, the founder wanted to go because the market was hot. 
And we were like, well, if we go, we got to go now because you really want to take advantage of the market. And to be honest, we were delayed because he wasn't ready to, you know, he didn't have all the numbers together. He didn't have all the, the information we needed to go. So we were probably delayed a couple months, could have impacted it. But the timing of the market is usually not the right reason to go to market. Probably the worst reason to go to market. Right. It's the only one. It could be combined with other things. It doesn't, it shouldn't be primary. Of course. Exactly. It has to be, you know, the, understanding the market, as I said, the external part, which is the market, you have to understand that bringing a deal forward. But I, I mean, I've done transactions in the we did transactions in the middle of COVID. We did transactions in the middle of, you know, in 2008, when we had the big recession, we did transactions then. So market is, is important, but not the only driving. Good companies usually sell with the market. Yeah. Good fundamentals. Let me ask you this. I've had a lot of discussions with founders in terms of, you know, they want to sell, you help them, you understand their history, but many times they don't lay out what their future looks like without selling, right? So paint the story. It's like telling a story to somebody and saying, this is where I want to go, irregardless if you buy me or not. And I find that some companies have a hard time with that. What's your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I think, it. you know, what happens a lot of these businesses, they're so busy running. And they're so busy trying to grow and do those things. They've never stepped back and done something a little more strategic in their thinking about what they want to do and how they want to do things. And I will tell you this, that is a, a big value add. If you have a company that has done that and mapped that out and goes to market, that, that's a big value add to the buyer. Not that the buyer is going to automatically take that strategy and use it, but the fact that those founders have thought through that is an important thing. Management team, believe it or not, is huge in this market. A lot, most private equity firms, they want teams, if those teams are going to stay, they want teams that, are, that can run the business at the next level. And to do that, you've had to go through those kind of processes. Yeah, that's a hard to, I think it's those two points are pretty important in the sense that the team is basically execution up till now and also future. And I think sometimes that's overlooked, right? Within the companies. It is. I'll give you an example. I had a deal, God, it was a long time ago. And uh, the owner had stepped away from the business and brought two guys in to run the business for him. And they've been with the business a long time. Very, very good guys. And uh, we began marketing the business with one of the guys as a CEO and one of the guys as a COO. And we went, we got offers and we had meetings. And between the offer and the meeting, the guy decided, you know what? The guy I have as a CEO really should be the COO. And the guy who's the COO should be the CEO. That's the way that should be. And, you know, it was a new move. So it was understandable. We made that change and it literally flipped out buyers. Yeah, it flipped out the buyers. The buyers were like, wait a second. If you don't even know who your CEO is going to be or who your CEO is going to be and literally pulled their deal. So, yeah. So, you know, it is, you know, you, again, what you'll find is, you know, buyers, they want things to go the way they're supposed to go, you know, and they want, if you've thought it out, they trust that. But then if you go back on that, they're like, what else didn't you do? You know, it's a, it's interesting. It's like when you find one number wrong in a spreadsheet, then you're like, wait, what other numbers are wrong here? Wait, exactly. Exactly. Sure. Everything unravels. Okay. So talk to me about what founders should think about as it relates to earnout and how long they should expect to stay. Like just high level 
things founders should be thinking about as it relates to that? Sure. So generally, even whether they're staying, they want to move on, you know, we're thinking transition periods going to be at least six months, most likely more like than a year, usually a year. Most buyers like the, the founders to stay longer, you know, two years. We did a transaction last year, about a year ago, actually, and the CEO really wanted out. And uh, he had another guy who's running the business and he's still there. He, he committed to two years and, but under circumstances, you know, they, that's the other part is, you know, when you're doing a transaction like this, we want to make sure that the role you have post-transaction is a role you really want. And that is a role that makes sense for you because it's very difficult to stay around for that period of time if you're really in a bad spot. So probably six months is the absolute minimum. And, you know, it's more like a year to two years. Unless you're staying on with the business, then they're probably looking for a three to five year commitment to do that. Earnout wise, obviously we try to do as little earnouts as possible. But if you're going to do an earnout, we try to keep them short, one year to two years. And generally, you know, most founders want to be around to do that. The other protect, we put a bunch of protections around those, make sure that you're running the business because earnout, you need to be able to make your earnout. We sold the business um, about 15 months ago to a public company, and the owner was supposed to build a business within his own business when they bought it. And we really worked very hard to make sure that he would have the latitude to grow the business, which they gave him. Unfortunately, in actual practice, they're not letting him grow his business. So, you know, even though you, you build it into the agreements and the understanding, sometimes it just doesn't happen that way. And we always kind of let founders and owners understand that, hey, this is the earnout, This is the way it's going to work. But at the end of the day, you know, this company, these things could change during this process. In your experience, I'm sure you followed up with people and, you know, build relationships over time as founders and executives go through different phases of their career. What's your experience in terms of people actually realizing their earnout? Uh, it's actually pretty good. I mean, again, part of it is how you structure it and how you do it. And, you know, the owners, the founders, whatever they are, they just have to understand it really well going in. And generally, these businesses are pretty stable, the ones I work with. So, you know, part of it is making sure the earnout is not what we call an earn up, which means you got to grow the business at some ridiculous rate to get the earn out. You know, that's not really an earn out. Um, and, you know, what we try to do is make them, hey, company has be consistently performing how they used to, and, and they get their earnouts. So it's pretty good. I'd say it's probably, if I had to pick a number, 60% are getting the earnout. And uh, I would also say that's probably how happy people are after they do a deal. You know, it's probably a little higher than that. And most of it is because when you're working for somebody else as a founder, it's a little different. You know, you don't have all the same controls you had before, and it's a little bit of an adjustment. So, but it is... And then there's those transactions where people can walk away. Listen, we love to do all cash deals and uh, or cash in stock or something like that rather than do earnouts. So let's talk about the scenario where a company buys, I'm sorry, a PE company or strategic is buying your company and they ask you to take some money off the table and then roll in equity. Like they get incentives in the larger company. 
Can you break that down for people just so they get a better understanding as to why that happens and what's in it for them? Sure. So that's probably the most common transaction that I get involved in where there is a purchase and a rollover of equity, as you as you called it. And they do that because, one, they like the business, they like the founders, they like the management, let's just call it that. And they want them to stay, and that's the best way to align the interests management with with the buyer, because if they perform, they all do well. Now, that's got its own tracks about, well, how do I get my money out? You know, am I part of a bigger organization and how do you value that? What does it value me? You know, what if they do poorly and I do well? All those kinds of things. So, But it's probably the best way to do a deal from a seller point of view as well, because, you know, I always like to tell people, hey, I've seen you can get a second bite out of the apple because if you really are selling it to grow it, if you can do that, then you may have another turn. You know, I've got a, the first deal I ever did in my career did with a guy that I knew pretty well. And uh, he's probably on his sixth or seventh bite of the apple. And he's, you know, he just did, it was the right buyer. And then it was the next right buyer and the next right buyer and the next right buyer. So it really is, uh, it can be done. It can be very good. It can be good. I think that speaks to the other point that we talked about is, you know, having a vision for the business, believing in that vision and being motivated to execute on that vision within a larger group. And you have that kind of support and resources with the larger entity. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the founders, their experience, but their experience in their business and that's what they do. And a lot of them want that. A lot of them say, how do I go higher? you know, a really good, you know, marketing guy, or how do I go hire a really good business development guy um, or a CFO or a, you know, any, how do I grow the business without diluting myself? You know, and, and sometimes, and a lot of times these private equity firms or strategic partners have been through that, know how to do that. How long does a transaction typically take from start to finish? Let's say they sign on with us or sign on with a banker you know, what should the expectations be from a founder's perspective? Yeah, realistically, it's probably, you know, two months to prep the information that's going to go to the market and maybe another six months to do the marketing and the deal. And that's if everything goes well. So, okay. you know, you figure eight months done and that means you had a really good process. You can go longer. I mean, again, generally, you know, I like to keep them all within, uh, you know, a year. But you know, if you have to remarket something, that changes the whole dynamic again. So you went out to the market and you didn't really get what you really wanted, but the guy really wants to sell the company. You know, you may repackage it and do it again, you know, a couple months later. So that's longer, but probably eight months is what I tell people. And also you might pause because the financials might not be going in the direction that they should be going. And then you remarket the next year once they, you know, recover. Yeah. I mean, and you try not to do that as best you can. So when I look at a deal, the two-month prep period is the time you really can kind of really make those decisions. Once you hit the market, you really want to follow through. And it's a, you know, the way we do it is a pretty structured process, timing-wise and, you know, when you're going to do, you know, when you're going to get information out, when you're going to get, you know, when you're expecting offers, when you're going to do management meetings. So once you hit that part, you want to follow through with it as best you can. Is it helpful to have the Oberon model? Like, what do you think of this traditional deep banking experience coupled with 
industry expertise. One plus one equals three or one plus one equals two? What's your perspective? No, I think the overall model definitely adds to the upfront part of the, you know, talking to the client, you know, getting information. As you and I know, we can go back into the firm and have people who have some expertise that we may be not just quite sure of and check on that. But at the end of the day, you know, the transaction is a very, you know, personal one between the founders and the bankers. So if you or I are on the deal, it's really us that are kind of executing. We have to build that trust with the client because, you know, these are, as I said before, they're complex. There's going to be periods where there's decisions to be made. There's going to be some frustration and they need somebody that they can really rely on and trust. And so you have to build that trust and it can't be built with a firm. It's got to be built with people. So it's important Somebody was just asking me about, well, how do you pick a banker and what are the things, kind of like what we were just going through. And I said, at the end of the day, too, make sure you know the person doing your deal and you like that person and you think you can get along with that person through a deal because there is a lot that you go through together. And it's uh, you want to make sure it's somebody you can really trust. And at the end of the day, that, that gets you through the deal, too. And vice versa for an investment banker to say, yes, I'm going to represent that company. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. It is. It's very important because you've got to get through some tough stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you know, the, we, obviously you and I both understand there's huge sensitivity when somebody wants to own or a founder wants to sell their company. It's like their baby. And so having the respect and understanding of what it took for that person to get there is crucial. And I think that's, uh, I always think that adds value as well in terms of being saying, you know, we've sat in your shoes before. Well, that's big. And, you know, not every banker can say that, as you know, but that is to me the largest thing that I think that we can say. And it's almost a thing that when you have conversations with the founders, they get it or you don't even have to say outside the issues. They kind of get it just by the way you ask questions, by the way you handle your things, you know, versus having a banker who is kind of sitting on top going, making judgments about your business and has no clue. That's tough. You know, the research and analytics space is going through a major, I would say evolution because the market's growing. It's not revolution. It's expansion of the market, given the ability to build these SaaS-based platforms, be able to provide research to broader groups and audiences within and client. And there's a lot of people who are kind of scratching their heads saying, I want to do that. Like I've built a business for 25 years, 20 years with this business model. It's earning cash. It's doing well, well well-respected, but yet I'm finding that people want the shiny toy. What advice do you give to people? It's an interesting point, you know, and you're right. That does happen. I mean, I think that the mindset needs not to be, I want the shiny toy, but I need to bring, as we know, tech into my current business model and use tech to kind of make it better, make it easier to deploy my services and what I do. And because that's the right formula, you know, too many people want to make something that they don't really have. And so everybody today is talking about, you know, a, you know, a SaaS model and doing all that. Well, that's fine, but if that's not what you really are, it's really hard to make yourself that. But adding technology, which, you know, as you know, we see a lot of firms doing that, the smart ones, so critical. And we're seeing it all over. It's in, you know, it's obviously in research, it's in in marketing, but we're seeing it in old industries as well. You know, working on another transaction and it's kind of human capital. The amount of technology being deployed there is just pretty amazing. 
And also you and I have had that conversation where some PE companies are even offering kind of tech resources to improve gross margin as part of their portfolio services. Exactly. Exactly. Because again, it's easier said than done, as we know, and that it's, you know, that's a whole different world running a tech team versus, you know, running, you know, a business that has, you know, sales and, you know, development and delivery. Tech side is a very, very different thing. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, you need to be able to manage that as well as everything else. Yeah. I also think some of these in the analytics and the research space, we have to consider what value are we providing? I mean, there's the business model that drives investment and, you know, attracts investment because of the, you know, reoccurring nature and less services. But ultimately, when you think about the value that is being delivered to clients, you know, it's synthesizing that data, it's providing insights, it's providing the final recommendation. And I think there's real value there as well. And maybe, you know, we need to make a bigger case for that value within the financial sector. I'm just making a comment versus saying it can't just be about SaaS. It's got to be about also the value you drive to clients. That is got to be the heart of the reason you're doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. John, thank you so much. This was great. And I know we have a series here. So the next one we're going to focus on is if you're thinking about buying a company, how would you go about thinking about running a buy side process? So stay tuned for next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.